Section Zero of Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Rachel Lintone in Bristol, UK. Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph by Francis Sheridan. Volume One Introduction and Note. Inscription. The editor of the following sheets takes this opportunity of paying the tribute due to exemplary goodness and distinguished genius when found united in one person by inscribing these memoirs to the author of Clarissa and Sir Charles Grandison. The Editor's Introduction I was invited to pass a month last summer in Buckinghamshire by a friend who paid annually a visit to his mother, a lady pretty far advanced in years, but extremely cheerful, sensible, and well-bred. She lived altogether in the country in a good old-fashioned house, which was part of her jointure, and it was to this hospitable mansion he carried me. The lady received me very politely as her son's friend, and I have great reason to be obliged to him for the introduction. My friend and I generally dedicated our evenings to the entertainment of this obliging lady. She loved reading, and was a woman of an excellent taste. But as her years rendered that employment not so easy to her as it had been, her son and myself usually spared her the task, and read to her such authors as she chose for her entertainment. Nor was she so confined to particular studies as not to allow us to vary our subjects as inclination led us. It happened one evening, which was on the eve of the day appointed for our departure, that we had made choice of the tragedy of Douglas for our entertainment, when a neighbouring lady, a sensible woman, who had drank tea with us, desired to make one of our auditors. After the tea-table was removed, we entered on our task. My friend and I read alternately to relieve each other, that we might not injure the performance by a wearied or flat delivery. When we had finished the reading of it, they each in her turn bestowed high praises on it. But the visitor lady said that, notwithstanding the pleasure it had afforded her upon the whole, she had one great objection to it. We were all impatient to know what it was. I think, said she, that the moral which it inculcates is a discouraging lesson, especially to youth. For the blooming hero of this story, though adorned with the highest virtues of humanity, truth, modesty, gratitude, filial piety, nobleness of mind, and valour in the most eminent degree, is not only buried in obscurity by a severe destiny till he arrives at manhood, but, when he emerges into light, is suddenly cut off by an untimely death, and that, at a juncture too, when we might, morally speaking, say his virtues ought to have been rewarded. We each spoke our thoughts on the subject, as opinion led us, when the old lady drew our attention which she always did, whenever she delivered her sentiments. "'I should think as you do, madam,' said she, "'if there were not too many melancholy precedents "'to give a sanction to the fable of that tragedy. "'I do not say but that the poet, 
who is at liberty to dispose as he pleases of the works of his own creation, may as well reward and punish according to the measures of justice established in the world, it might perhaps make a better impression and indeed afford a more prevalent example to the generality of young people. I say, therefore, I do not take upon me to support an opposite conduct as the best, but surely the poet who prefers that course may be justified in it from every day's experience. If we always saw virtuous people successful in their pursuits, and their days crowned with prosperity, there would be more force in your objection. But the direct contrary is a truth which everybody who has lived but a moderate number of years must have been convinced of from their own observation. Amongst heathens, indeed, who looked no farther than this life for good and evil, and whose only incitement to virtue was the praise of men, or what they called glory, such morals might be dangerous. But surely, amongst us Christians, they cannot, at least ought not, to have any ill effect. On the contrary, I think it should serve to confirm that great lesson which we are all taught indeed, but which we seldom think of reducing to practice, namely, to use the good things of this life with that indifference, which things are neither permanent in their own nature, nor of any estimation in the sight of God, deserve. On the other hand, to consider the evils which befall us as equally temporary and no more dispensed by the great ruler of all things for punishments than the others are for rewards, and by thus estimating both, to look forward for an equal distribution of justice to that place only, where, let our station be what it will, our lot is to be unchangeable. It is in this light that I was instructed in my early days to consider the various portions that fall to the share of mankind, which very often, as far as we can see, appear extremely partial, and no doubt would really be so were there not an invisible world where the distributions are just and equal. From this reflection I have drawn comfort on many trying incidents of my life, but in none more than the unhappy fate of a lady who was my particular friend, and who, though a woman of most exemplary virtue, was, through the course of her whole life, persecuted by a variety of strange misfortunes. This lady, to use your expression, madam, addressing her friend, to all human appearance, ought at last to have been rewarded, even here. But her portion was affliction. What then are we to conclude but that God does not estimate things as we do? It is ignorant as well as sinful to arraign his providence. We daily see its dispensations with our own eyes in the various accidents of life. Why should we not then allow the poet to copy from life and exhibit to our view events the probability of which are founded on general experience?
We are indeed so much used to what they call poetical justice that we are disappointed in the catastrophe of a fable if everybody concerned in it be not disposed of according to the sentence of that judge which we have set up in our own breasts. The contrary we know happens in real life. Let us not then condemn what is drawn from real life. We may wish to see nature copied from her more pleasing works, but a martyr expiring in tortures is as just, though not as agreeable, a representation of her as a hero rewarded with the brightest honours. We agreed with the venerable lady in her observations, and her son, taking occasion from her mentioning that unfortunate person who was her friend, told her he would take it as a particular favour if she would oblige me with a sight of that lady's story. She answered that, as we had fixed upon the next day for our departure, there would not be time for me to peruse it, but that she would entrust me with it to town, that I might read it at my leisure. It is drawn up, said she, for the most part by the lady herself, and the occasion of its being so was this. She and I had been intimate from our childhood. We were playfellows when young, and constant companions as we grew up. We always called each other sister, and loved as well as if we'd really stood in that relation to each other. It was our continual practice from children to keep little journals of what daily happened to us. These, in all our short absences, were matter of great entertainment to us. We constantly communicated them when we met or if we chanced to be separated by any distance, we made a mutual exchange by the post of our little diurnal registers, having made each a solemn promise not to conceal an incident or even a thought of the least moment from the other. And this promise, I believe, was religiously kept up during a correspondence of many years. I had a brother about three years older than myself, a very promising young man. He was an only son and the darling of his parents. When he had finished his studies, my father thought of sending him abroad, but his fondness for him made him resolve to accompany him himself. A better tutor or a better guide he could not have found for him. My father was then in the prime of life. He had not other children but him and me. My mother, as fond of me as he was of his son, and perfectly affectionate to my father, expressed her wish that we two should be of this party. She said, the thought of a young lady under proper conduct might improve as much by seeing foreign courts and the various customs of different nations as a young gentleman's. I was then about sixteen. My father readily consented as he perfectly loved my mother, and we all four set out on our tour together. It was my lot, after I had been some time abroad, to marry an English gentleman, then resident at Vienna. This occasioned my continuing there some years, 
and it was during that space of time that I had the occurrences of my friend's life from her own hand, as she had kept up to the method we had agreed on of communicating everything that happened, even to trivial matters. It generally increased the bulk of the packets I used to receive from her to a prodigious size. These she sent off occasionally at nearer or more distant periods of time, accordingly as I gave her the opportunity by letting her know our motions. I have, from those papers, selected the most material parts of her history, and connected them so as to make one continued narrative. There were long intervals of time between many of the most important incidents of her life, but as the passages which intervened were either foreign to the main scope of her story, or too trivial to be recorded, in copying her papers they were omitted. I have myself prefixed to her story a very brief account of the lady's family. Thus much, sir, added the good lady, I thought necessary to premise to you, for your better understanding her history, which I have never yet shown to any one but my son. When I took my leave, she put the manuscript into my hands with a charge to be careful of it. We returned to town, and in less three weeks I had the mortification to hear that this respectable old lady, by whom I had been entertained with so much friendship and politeness, was dead. Her son, my friend, was on this occasion obliged to go down into Buckinghamshire. It was some months before I saw him again, as he had a good deal of family business to settle. When he came back to London, I offered to return him the manuscript which he'd quite forgotten. He told me, as he had all the original papers, that copy was at my service. I then expressed my wish that it were made public. To this he at first objected, as he said there were several persons living, related to the parties concerned in some of the principal events of the story, who might take umbrage at it. I told him that this might easily be obviated by changing the names of both persons and places, which I would undertake to do throughout the whole, and I was afterwards so urgent with him to comply with my request that he at last yielded. With his consent, therefore, I give it to the world just as I received it, without any alteration excepting the proposed one of a change of names. Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph, Editor's Note Mrs. Catherine Sidney Biddulph was the daughter of Sir Robert Biddulph of Wiltshire. Her father died when she was very young, and of ten children none survived him but this lady and his eldest son afterwards, Sir George Biddulph. The family estate was not very considerable, and Miss Biddulph's portion was but £4,000. A fortune, however, at that time not quite contemptible. It was in the beginning of Queen Anne's reign. Lady Biddulph was a woman of plain sense but exemplary piety. The strictness of her notions, highly commendable in themselves, 
now and then gave a tincture of severity to her actions, though she was everywhere esteemed a truly good woman. She had educated her daughter, who was one of the greatest beauties of her time, in the strictest principles of virtue, from which she never deviated through the course of an innocent, though unhappy, life. Sir George Biddulph was nine or ten years older than his sister. He was a man of good understanding, moral as to his general conduct, but void of any of those refined sentiments which constitute what is called delicacy. Pride is sometimes accounted laudable. That which Sir George possessed, for he had pride, was not of this kind. He was a weakly constitution, and had been ordered by the physicians to spar for the recovery of a lingering disorder, which he had laboured under for some time. It was just on his return to England that the busy scene of his sister's life opened. An intimate friend of hers of her own sex, to whom she revealed all the secrets of her heart, happened at this juncture to go abroad, and it was for her perusal only the following journal was intended. That friend has carefully preserved it, as she thinks it may serve for an example, to prove that neither prudence, foresight, nor even the best disposition that the human heart is capable of, are of themselves sufficient to defend us against the inevitable ills that sometimes are allotted even to the best. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. End of section zero.